Disruptors. Contract software company Syrian Labs announced this week that it had raised $85 million in a Series D round led by Swiss private markets firm Partners Group. The round also included existing backers Tiger Global, Secure Capital and Avatar Capital, Syrian Labs has said. It brings Syrian Labs' total capital raised to $157 million, according to the contract lifestyle management company. Legal Disruptors. LexisNexis has surprised people with its acquisition of Silicon Valley-based contract lifestyle management software provider ParleyPro to expand its CounselLink enterprise legal management platform business. The ParleyPro deal will enable CounselLink users to manage their contracts in real time, from drafting and negotiating through to signing, all within one platform, according to LexisNexis. The deal comes as corporate legal departments face increased workload and bandwidth challenges, with in-house teams expected to handle more tasks with fewer internal resources. Some 60% of chief legal officers are anticipating an increase in work volume due solely to privacy and regulatory enforcement, according to a recent Association of Corporate Counsel survey. Against that backdrop, in-house teams are expected to increase adoption of legal service requests and intake technologies over the next two years, second only to AI-related tech, the ACC survey has found. Legal disruptors. And the Thomson Reuters Institute has published its State of the UK Legal Market 2022. The findings include how the ongoing impact of the pandemic and the aftermath of Brexit has weighed heavily on the legal market in the United Kingdom over the past year, especially as the realities of the move away from the European Union become more apparent. Also, it explains how the UK legal market is experiencing its highest level of spend optimism in the last five years, and that the portion of UK legal buyers saying they're anticipating their overall legal spend will grow in the coming months has seen a huge increase in the last year. Legal disruptors powered by semis. Digital contracting done differently with intelligent automation making your workflow smarter. For more, visit semis.com. Legal tech conference season is on as heading back out and networking in person has returned to the sector post-pandemic. In May, things are really taking off with the 2022 CLOC Global Institute in Las Vegas. Industry leaders from across diverse industries contribute to the insightful and thoughtful-provoking conversations happening at the CLOC Global Institute. The event happened 9th to the 12th of May and featured speakers from Microsoft, Workday, Google, EY, and Alan Overy. Here's Nam Truong from Law Squared, who seems keen. Also here to get a lay of the ground and learn from the best, learn how a mature legal ops function uh, interacts with the in-house teams, in-house lawyers, um, and what kind of technologies and processes that they're leveraging. Speakers as diverse as Jen McCarran from Netflix and mindfulness expert Lee Papa took part in several days of talks and networking. Here's two more fans, Callie Collins from Twilo and Gerald Glover from Davis Wright Tremaine. No matter if it's your very first time or you're a veteran, you're coming here and taking away so many added skills and ideas. You learn from your colleagues because it's such a different experience to engage in person than over Zoom. It's fair to say delegates find value in what they learn and also 
who they meet at these shows. In the UK this month, Tech Play Day in London, billed as the world's first completely interactive technology event aimed at the legal industry. Tech Play Day encourages attendees to play with the latest tech in person rather than sit on online demos. There is a star-studded lineup this year with speakers from Deloitte, Pets at Home and Witch. The second Tech Play Day powered by Semis takes place on May 17th in London. The exhibitors this year are from both legal tech and fintech companies. Attendees can expect to meet people from Econi Hub, the cash management platform, Tabled, a legal workflow solution, as well as many more. And we'll be reporting back from the event on our next episode. Legal Disruptors. As Paris Monroe reporting there, and Graeme Smith, this is Legal Disruptors, the podcast with all things legal tech dropping every fortnight across the summer. And if you want to learn more about Tech Play Day, head to surmise.com right now. Don't forget, right after this episode of Legal Disruptors, we got a chance to hear Richard Tromans, the founder of Artificial Lawyer, Electra Japonis from The Law Boutique, Tom Dunlop from Surmise, and Vanessa Chalice, founder of Tiger Law, discussing doing things differently in legal. And you can see full video of that exclusively on Spotify and just listen to the audio elsewhere. That is next after this episode of Legal Disruptors. You're listening to Legal Disruptors powered by Semis with the must-listen-to people at the cutting edge of legal, tech, business and AI. This is the Trendsetter Talk on Legal Disruptors. On this episode, Rosie Burbridge, a specialist IP lawyer and partner at Gunner Cook, chats to the CTO of Surmise, Richard Summerfield, about trends in IP and patent law and how they both feel about the new hybrid working model. Still to come on Legal Disruptors. Technically, software as such is not capable of being patented, um, at least in Europe it's not. So in the EU and UK. Um, before the pandemic, you had to fax. Fax was still a thing. And it's like completely crazy. So thankfully the pandemic killed faxes. Legal disruptors. Interested in uh, how you got into IP law in the first place? Well, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question of which there's a very long answer about how I got interested in law in the first place and a shorter answer, which is I think of all of the areas of law, it's the it combines creativity and uh, kind of helping people with what I consider to be the more interesting aspects of their business. So it's core to the business's strategy, it's overall success and really, um, you know, gives us a, a huge opportunity as lawyers to sort of see behind the hood and get to grips with some of the key technologies and also some of the um, really important areas around marketing and global reach, which I think are really exciting, interesting, and I guess probably more than most other areas of law enable us to work with um, lawyers and a whole range of other businesses around the world. So it's those two elements, the international element and the creativity sort of innovation elements. I've also noticed that uh, obviously you work for Gunner Cook. Noticed both yourself and Gunner Cook quite a lot of awards over the, over the years. What do you feel you bring to, you know, IP law and you know where have those awards come from? So Gunner Cook is, I guess, um, at the much more innovative end of law firms, which you might say is not necessarily saying a great deal. <laughs> um, but essentially, the way that we were founded was with a completely different business model to your traditional law firm. So each partner is responsible pretty much directly for their own business. Like I um, essentially 
run my own units, I have my own team, and it's made me much more aware of the business stresses that I think a lot of my clients face and has ultimately made me a much better lawyer because I can empathize and understand with their kind of commercial needs as much as their legal needs. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I don't follow all of our awards, to be honest, but um, I think really it, where it's come from is because every partner is very much responsible for their own success, it's made us, I think, a lot better at serving our clients and there is much more of a desire to be efficient and to utilize technology to improve that because, you know, that that old model of just churning through junior hours is not sustainable on, on for many reasons, but also just isn't a realistic way of um, operating when you've kind of got partners having to make quite a difficult decision about whether to incur the cost of hiring someone. So, you know, when you're looking at it from that dimension, actually introducing some technology that's going to make you more efficient is often a better choice than hiring an additional person. It's quite, it's quite interesting you talk about, you know, you operate as a, like a company within a company, so you get to feel the, the business pressures. For, from your perspective, how, how do you talk to your clients about IP, particularly IP law and what, you, what they do and don't need to be protecting? Well, I mean, obviously it varies hugely with, within, um, you know, different sectors and different um, sort of risk profiles of businesses and obviously depending on budget. I think, you know, some, particularly if you've got a very um, innovation in the sense of R&D focused business, then thinking about patents as early as possible is essential because you've got basically zero window with patents. You need to file it before you disclose the invention. And if you've disclosed it, then you've kind of, you've missed the boat kind of thing. You might still be able to get a slightly more narrow patent um, which excludes the things that you've shared with the public, but it just becomes more and more challenging to defend that. And obviously the more things you share, the harder that gets. But of course, as a startup, your motivation is to tell everyone about how amazing your new idea is in order to gain funding and exposure. So, and quite often startups don't have the money to pay for a patent. So it's that kind of pressure and helping clients to, work out when they need to spend the money and on what. And obviously, you know, some areas, you know, particularly around software, it may, you know, in some circumstances be possible to get a patent, but often when you're quite early stage, it's perhaps not worth investing in that. I think patents are much more valuable for people who are more um, in the hardware space or who are, you know, industries like pharmaceuticals where it's pretty much essential to your success to have a really strong patent portfolio. Um, yeah, I mean, I've worked in software for quite a few years now and over the years been fortunate to get some patents myself. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting you talk about the process. It's, it, it is intimidating and I think, you know, we see a lot of the larger companies, your Apples, your IBMs, your Microsofts, et cetera, having huge patent teams and, you know, hundreds of patents a year are, are granted to those companies. How how do you talk to startups? Um, and what kind of tips do you give to startups on how to navigate that kind of area? Particularly, obviously, like you say, a startup wanting to move really quickly, wanting to talk about what they're doing at the same time, 
if they're bringing some kind of innovation to market, whether that be software, hardware, or whatever it would be, you know, they really just want to get swallowed or, or totally overwhelmed by a larger business that just comes in and, and takes this, the, the idea or concept. What kind of tips do you give to startups? So I think there's a few things. One, like there are two dimensions to this as well. One is making sure that you yourself are protected, you know, as in like your invention is protected. But the other side of the coin is making sure that you're not sued for infringement. And typically the larger tech companies aren't the people that you need to worry about for that. It's actually... Um, what are called non-practicing entities who buy up patent portfolios and have a sort of strategy of encouraging people to license their patents, um, some of which are on um, varying degrees of validity um, in order to you know, essentially monetize their portfolios, um, which is, I guess, one good reason for filing patents, that you do have this long tail of cash flow potentially but also does show the, the risk. So I think two things. One is to make sure that you get input from a patent attorney as early as possible. Um, a lot of patent attorneys will give at least a kind of initial view on whether or not what you've created could be patentable free of charge. Um, and quite often they're linked up to the various grant bodies who might be able to um, provide some funding towards patents. And we'll have, you know, there are various tax credits and tax regimes that can be helpful. So R&D tax credits are very well known, but there's also something called the patent box. So worth working with accountants as well to see what potential um, opportunities there might be to, you know, offset some of those costs. The other side of the coin, which I think is often neglected and is equally important, is to think about how you would fund a potential claim that was made against you. And the most obvious way of doing that is to ensure that you've got good insurance in place. Um, Typically, most business insurance doesn't include IP, like it's carved out very deliberately because it can be quite expensive to respond to an IP claim. But whilst it is possible to get insurance, what they call after the event, so after someone's told you that they think that they're going to sue you, it's considerably cheaper to get it um, before the event, so before you know that there is an issue. Um, and, you know, you don't necessarily need to have a huge um, huge premium. And also, I mean, the amount that needs coverage isn't necessarily wild. You don't need to have a million pounds worth of coverage, even though a claim might cost a million. You just need to have enough to put up a robust defence and then identify whether or not they have a valid claim. Because if they do, there's no point fighting it. Probably anyway, you just want to get to the settlement deal around licensing the technology or perhaps tweak the technology so that you're outside the scope of the patent. But having the resources to be able to make those decisions is really important. That's yeah, really useful tips, those ones. So one of, one of the things you mentioned there was around the, uh, the, the, like the IP holding companies who perhaps don't produce the product or aren't, aren't making that product anymore, but they've perhaps bought the patent portfolio and, the, and leveraging that. Um, obviously, in, in the origins of patent law, typically more around like manufacturing and actual physical products rather than software. Do you feel the IP laws around the world are perhaps need changing or you know, are there any alterations with regards to software? Obviously software moves so quickly and there's so many innovations and without the physical manufacturing, it's kind of a different ball game. Do you, do you think the same law applies to all different areas of, of IP or you know, do you see any changes coming? 
So, well, two things. Firstly, I mean, technically software as such is not capable of being patented, um, at least in Europe, it's not. So in the EU and UK, um, you need to have um, some kind of technical contribution. So there needs to be a sort of real world impact uh, of the software. In reality, it's quite often if you're a skilled patent attorney to work around that and to find something that can be patented. But it's just worth noting that the original intention was very much not to have patents for software for the exact reason that they are quite, um, there is this quick turnaround. It's a very innovative, fast moving industry and patents are typically better suited to products like pharmaceuticals or mechanical engineering where there's a lot of investment that's put into a product that then remains relatively static for quite a long amount of time. Um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that patents are by no means the only intellectual property rights. So there are quite a few other areas that are um, worth knowing about, um, of which copyright being the most obvious in relation to software, where it's typically treated as being a literary work, as in the source code itself being a kind of not quite Jane Austen, but you know something that's intended to be um, interpreted and understood as a literary work. And there can be issues with that as far as if it's um, decompiled or translated into another coding language. But I mean, that's a whole different topic for another day. But overall, copyright does work quite well for software. Like generally where this sort of thing arises, it's where there's been an employee who's left and taken something, you know, that might well be one of the co-founders or it might be somebody else who's worked on a project and taken some of the code base with them. Um, if where it becomes a little bit more diff difficult from a copyright perspective is if someone's kind of copying the look and feel and the functionality, but not the underlying code itself and they're, Sometimes it is still possible to have an argument around copyright, particularly if um, elements of the visual side of things are taken. Um, and then you might be able to go down an artistic copyright road, but you know it does have its limitations, not least that, as the name suggests, in order to be able to establish copyright, you need to show that there has been some copying. And if there isn't a connection, like say, for example, with a, an old employee, it becomes quite difficult to show that there may have been copying um, it rather than just a coincidence or somebody being inspired, which <laughs> is a term that I hear quite often. I think it's also worth being aware of one of my personal favorites and the most um, poorly understood IP rights, which is designs. And they can be registered or unregistered. Unregistered designs only last for three years, um, at least in a kind of software context. For physical products, you can get a UK registered design that lasts um, typically 10 years, but potentially 15 years, depending on when it was first marketed. Um, but essentially, if we think about it solely in a software context, an unregistered design is something that protects the sort of shape or appearance of the whole or part of a product. And that can include like a logo and it can include a user interface. So not the interface as in the way that you manipulate it, but single um, sort of static slides of a user interface. So like, I don't know, home screen on an app or like the key different um, phases through a website, you can protect that, both the colors and the kind of relative um, shading, that sort of thing. And do you 
are there any areas of what you do or the process you do where you think perhaps technology is yet to happen or there's like you know, disruption or innovation that you're, you're hoping for? Well, I guess, um, for example, I do a combination of filings, um, strategy and litigation. And in each of these areas, there have been dramatic improvements, not least the fact that people finally accept email signature in a lot of jurisdictions. Um, and the fact that well, the pandemic was hugely useful in terms of, you know, like before the pandemic, you had to fax. Fax was still a thing. And it's like completely crazy. So thankfully, the pandemic killed faxes. And um, now I think... I mean, it's crazy to think that that's major innovation in the 21st century, but yes, that that has made quite a big difference to my life. It's also things like electronic bundling has become a lot easier and we have a lot more of these virtual hearings, um, which obviously saves a lot in time and in because we're not having hard copy bundles a lot of the time, that saves a lot of time and cost for clients um, and makes it much easier for everyone to be on the same page. I think that's kind of like weirdly the pandemic was extremely helpful in terms of just forcing people to make changes that I think were otherwise going to take at least another five years. So there have been some positives from it. Cool. I mean, you you mentioned there about, um, you know, kind of online, the pandemic obviously changing, changing many things really. I mean, we've seen, seen perhaps a switch back a little bit towards more traditional ways as people kind of would like to meet people in the office and, and all the rest of it. But I think that's one of the things we saw both ourselves and the companies we were looking at was that the virtual office really came in overnight. You know, it went from being a physical office to a virtual office really quickly. And once once people were able to make that switch over, the, the it changed considerably really you know like you've gone from from a point where everybody had to be in a physical location to now it's it's very much of a hybrid model have you experienced the same thing at gonna cook too i mean yes so weirdly in two different ways so gonna cook i have historically always worked with my fellow partners remotely like we're always in different locations so i'm very much used to that but my actual team because they're relatively junior, it's very, I found, I mean, obviously we had to work remotely for a large part of the pandemic, but it's very, very difficult training people remotely, very difficult to check in and um, manage, you know, a whole range of different things from emotional state through to just, I don't know, trying to, um, the sorts of things when you're sat next to somebody, you can tell when they're veering wildly off track. But when you're working on something yourself at home and you don't hear anything for two or three hours, you don't know if that's because somebody's gone off on a massive tangent or because they have, you know, they've just been working on the task that was set. So I think, I mean, that really has been the most challenging thing with remote working is yeah, training, development, onboarding. And I've, I still don't have an easy answer to that. I mean, frankly, I think it's just never going to be as good doing that remotely. Um, so we do, I mean, I have a semi-hybrid approach, but to be honest, most days we're, we're in the office because I've got a nice space in a central location. And, you know, I've prioritized having that over everyone working from home, not least because my team are quite junior. So working from home for them means sitting at a dining room table with other people, which, you know, just is very much less than ideal. Yeah, I've made some great points there. I think it, 
it really is like role and experience dependent a little bit that uh you know perhaps perhaps your more junior members of staff just need that you know just close contact i think the being fully remote is actually quite quite challenging both for the mentor and the mentoree as well which is yeah something to be definitely be aware of I mean, I think the problem that happens in a bigger firm is that a lot of that burden of the mentoring process gets taken on by a few people. So a lot of people prefer to work from home and maybe are more efficient and able to bill more hours. But then a lot of additional work is done by the people who go into the office. But then that work has never been recognised in law firms. Um, And I I suspect that's going to lead to more divisions in the future. I don't quite know how or in what way, but... and I'm very happy to be outside of that environment where that's not something I need to worry about. But that has always been a, a tension in, um, in traditional firms. And I'm sure it will continue to be. Yeah, definitely. Oh, cool. super. Super to meet you. And you too. That's good. Great chat. Thank you. Legal Disruptors, powered by Surmise. Legal teams gain visibility and control while business colleagues are empowered to self-serve. Digital contracting software the whole business will love. Visit surmise.com for more. Welcome along to Legal Disruptors, the podcast with all the latest news and conversation from the world of legal tech. On our next episode, we're hearing back from Tech Play Day on May the 17th in London, powered by Surmise. The event that encourages attendees to play with the latest tech in person rather than sit in online demos with speakers from Deloitte, Pets at Home and Witch. For free ticket info, head to surmise.com right now. And here's Paris with a look into how in-house lawyers are becoming business advisors as much as solely legal advisors. The FT this week has been reporting on innovative lawyers working for in-house legal teams, increasingly making important commercial as well as legal contributions to their organisations. In-house lawyers are increasingly being valued as small business advisors as well. The legal team at the Australian airline Qantas was singled out for their efforts during the pandemic lockdowns. They raised new funds, negotiated agreements with suppliers and helped the airline to shift quickly to running repatriation flights. The rise of legal operations as a discipline and the growing importance of environmental, social and governance ESG matters for businesses has led to more varied careers for in-house legal. Rachel John is a senior in-house legal counsel at one of the UK's leading retail brands. An in-house legal team simply has to deliver a commercial contribution in a modern business rather than a purely legal view. External law firms are there to provide the black and white legal rhetoric, whereas in-house lawyers do that too, but they're also in a unique position that they often see and are involved in the detail of multiple deals across multiple different business units. So with that in level of understanding and insight of a business, plus access to the right people to not use that knowledge for the commercial benefit of the business would not only be a waste of resources but a missed opportunity for individuals to get more from their career. The market for top legal talent is incredibly tight around the world. While competitive pay matters, one important draw of an in-house legal career is the chance to do challenging work and feel connected to the success and mission of a business, reports the FT. Take Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. They claim to have attracted top legal talent partly by promising exciting work, such as engaging with regulators on establishing frameworks to govern cryptocurrencies and other digital assets. 
It's clear that in 2022, the boundaries between business advisors and legal professionals is being blurred at business of all shapes and sizes around the world. Next time on Legal Disruptors. Because it's branded as legal tech, people associate it purely with lawyers or purely by a specific contract. You think this is the whole business. Um, and if you actually look at you know, people in their day-to-day lives deal with contracts all the time, whether it's from accepting new things from their phone or whether they're buying a car or renting a house apartment. Ben Audley there on our next episode. Next on our podcast feed, right after this episode of Legal Disruptors, we have a chance to hear Richard Tromans, the founder of Artificial Lawyer, Electra Japonis from The Law Boutique, Tom Dunlop from Surmise, and Vanessa Chalice, founder of Tiger Law, discussing doing things differently in legal. Surmise partnered with Artificial Lawyer to give online viewers the chance to post questions as well, and you can hear that next. If you're listening on Spotify, you'll also be able to watch that as well. Uh, so that bonus episode that you can watch exclusively on Spotify or in audio-only form elsewhere is on the way right off the back of this episode. We'll see you next time. The latest in the world of legal, business and technology. Legal Disruptors, powered by Semis. Digital contracting done differently.